Hi, I'm Ken Sweeney. This is The Comfortable Spot. Welcome. Today, I'm joined by musician Midge Ure. With a career spanning over 40 years, Midge has been one of the most influential artists of his time. Throughout the 1970s and 1980s, Midge enjoyed enormous success in a number of bands, including Slick, Rich Kids, Thin Lizzy, Visage, and as the frontman of Ultravox. Along with Bob Geldof, he was also a key figure in the now historic charity project Band-Aid, which raised millions of pounds for Africa during the 1980s. Midge has also had an equally successful solo career, and he still records and tours regularly. I've always been a fan of his music, and I thought it would be great to have a chat with him about some aspects of his career. So I hope you're sitting comfortably and happy to stay with us. Midjur, hi. Thank you for joining me on the Comfortable Spot podcast. It's such a pleasure and an honour to meet you. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure being here. I put this podcast together because I wanted to maybe um, talk to people who I admire or who I follow, be it Twitter or be it through just my life. And uh, you were right up the top of the list there. <laughs> <laughs> I think you say that to everybody. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Um, like this was this was the golden one. Um, look, you know, I've been a fan of, of yourself in all the forms that you've been in since I was 10 years of age. It started for me uh, when my brother, who was a fair bit older, and he was kind of into more Bob Dylan and, you know, Hart and all those big stadium rock bands that were around the 70s. And he had all these pictures up on the walls. And I, I was downstairs stairs and and my sister who was a little bit old she got um i think the magazine was jackie and she uh she had it there and i just rooting through the magazine and i just saw this band and um you know i said who are these guys and my sister just went oh don't mind them they're not duran duran so i went okay so that was enough for me to say right i'm gonna find out who they are so obviously there was no internet or anything so i went to the best source of, of uh, information it was my dad so i asked my dad and he didn't know who they were so next up was my mum and my mum just went, oh, that's Majure. He's so handsome. He's lovely. You should definitely follow them. <laughs> so I said, how am I going to do this? You know, because there was no access or anything. So she went out and she bought me your the album, uh, Vienna. And it was it was the first like kind of vinyl, I think, that I ever got. And I had no idea even how to play it. So she showed me how to play it. And I still have that copy today. It's scratched. That's good. It's I, I love it. I love it. Yeah. You know, but it's that, still there. I think that's good parental guidance. There, yeah. Right there. That's good parenting. Yeah. Well, the thing is, my mum, she, she passed away a few years ago. I think I, she would probably be in such a state if she heard I was talking to you this morning. Because throughout the years, you know, and she, she was kind of like the typical mum, she'd say, um, Oh, you know, those bands, they're not as good as the 60s bands. But when it came to you and Ultravox, she always saw it differently. And I guess at the time I didn't know what that was, but now I actually do know what it was. I think I'm going to put it to you and see what you think. I think your band just had a certain maturity about it that the other pop bands didn't have. And I wonder about that, you know, as I look on. And I'm not just talking about the visual aspects of it. I'm talking about the music. You seem to have it kind of sorted. And I'm wondering, was that because... You, and we'll probably talk about it in a moment, had had such experience beforehand, both good and bad, and so had the band. So when you came together in 1979, I'm just wondering, did Ultravox have a lot of the boxes ticked in terms of getting the sound and the image right? I think we, I think we had a, a, a mixed bag of experience. You know, I'd, I'd been through the slick and, and rich kids thing. 
Um, you know, they had, uh, you know, they'd been through various uh, band members, had been dropped by the label. So it wasn't a really, wasn't a great experience. But once you've done those things and you found yourself going down, you know, a route that you weren't particularly pleased with, you kind of know what you, you might know. Our drummer said this once, I, I don't know what I want, but I know what I don't want. So you get to a point where you know what you don't want. And we didn't want anyone telling us what to do. We didn't want anyone trying to take the songs and turn them into, you know, bubblegum pop hits. Um, you know, we went, we, we took our, we took our chances and went down our own peculiar route. Um, you know, to the extent that when, uh, when the record label, uh, was, was scouting around trying to sign us, uh, they insisted on hearing demos, you know, demo, uh, recordings of the songs. And we said no, because, you know, sometimes there's something in a demo that you can't recreate. So they finally got so fed up with us. They said, look, we've given you two days in the, the studio in London, you know, do something. So we did, we went in and we recorded Sleepwalk. We've we'd completely finished it, did the entire master. And they signed us on the strength of that. And then they just let us get on with it. They just let us book the studio, find the producer, find out, you know, all the areas that we wanted to work, find the graphics, find the photographers. We did it all and then presented it to them. And, and that worked for a long, long time because there was an, an independence about what we wanted to do. Once you've done a lot of things you didn't want to do, you kind of know you don't want to go down that road again. And that sounds like maturity already to me. Maybe my mum was right. The other thing I wanted to go back, I just want to go back a little bit. You had come to Ultravox in 79 and, and you've said it before in many interviews. I think the best way to describe it was you felt that the band was broken when, when you had met them. And you had also got to a point with the rich kids where you had tried to introduce a new element and they half of them had said yes and the other half said no. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the half that had said yes then diversed into a visage. Could we describe Visage as the first 1980s supergroup? Oh, you know what? I'm I'm not quite sure. Would you? Would you? I don't yeah, know. I think um, so. It, it just I suppose the nature of how it how it was formed. It was formed out of a favourite musician. So, yeah. you know, you you'd Billy from from Ultravox uh, as they then were, and you're the guys from uh, Magazine, mm. uh, and Rusty and I from the Rich Kids. So in, in, in a way, it was kind of, I don't know, the, the Travelling Wilburys long before the Travelling Wilburys <laughs> were around. I, I really don't know if you'd call it a super group or not. I mean, we were, we were known in our own circles, but it wasn't like a bunch of superstars getting together and forming, you know, a super band. Uh, it was a bunch of, a collective of musicians who were great musicians who all wanted to, you know, experiment and, and, and play with this, these new electronic toys. Hmm. So in a way, I, I suppose, yeah, you, you could maybe call it that. I think the aspect of what Visage was, was that it, it had so many elements that were so brilliant, but there was a lot of what ifs about a Visage. You know, you, there wasn't a tour, for example. I mean, there's very few photographs of you all together. And, you know, nowadays, as you probably know, that would have been impossible to do. But at the time, when you went to the record company and you said, we have this project, you know, it's brilliant. We've got these songs. Did they say to you, oh, you need to take photographs and you need to tour? And what, what happened there? Because none of that happened. It, no, none of it happened. I mean, it was uh, it was a collective. We we always called it a collective. So mm. it was just a bunch of musicians with uh, with Steve uh, Steve Strange fronting it. And it was at a time you got to remember that this was like you know videos were starting to become the big thing at this point. So videos had kind of uh, were, were the new touring. 
so we wanted to do it all with videos. We never we never appeared on a TV show together. We never did any of that stuff together. Steve would go off with the, the two girls, the dancers, uh, backing singers, and do all the television shows and whatever. Uh, and I, I, you know, Rusty and I would be in the studio, you know, working away in the, on, on the stuff. So it, it felt to us like, you know, touring had been done to death. It was never going to be a touring band simply because we were all still part of the setups that we were part of. Mm. The rich kids were maybe in their final death throes, but we were still there together. Uh, magazine was still together and Ultravox was still together at that mm -hmm. point. Yeah. So yeah. the idea of touring wasn't even on the wasn't even on the card. Steve was never really a singer as, mm -hmm. as such. You know, I, I, I could get him to sound like he could sing in the in the studio, but it never it would never have translated to live performance so again the concept was slightly different from just throwing a band together and going out on tour and playing all the you know sticky carpeted gigs this was more about get in front of a camera and, and do something creative. Yeah, and it certainly was creative though. I mean, even when you look back in the video of Fade to Grey, you can see elements there that are still used today, you know? And um, there was one thing that I loved the story about how the French words came in. I think it was just some girl that you knew. And, um, you know, again, you know, as a young boy growing up, naturally when I started to listen to the likes of Ultravox and so on in Japan, it, it you know, Fade to Grey automatically comes into the realm because where I lived, I lived in a, very much like yourself, was brought up in a working class area in Dublin. And uh, for me, my influence was the older guys that used to hang in the corner with the one speaker cassette player. And they had all the cool albums. But what was really nice about them was they used to loan me the albums that I couldn't afford. Because for me, buying an album was like a moment, you know, you take it out of the actual uh, shop sleeve and walk down the final, you know, half 500 meters of your of your street to just to make sure everybody knows that you've got the latest sparkle in the rain by simple it was It was your badge of honor. <laughs> of course. You know, yeah, it, absolutely. It, it showed the world who and what you were. Yeah, yeah. You're walking down the street with your album sleeve <laughs> pointing out so everyone could see it. Yeah. yeah and I, I was a lot younger than those guys. So for me, it was like I was getting double points, you know. But the thing was, they introduced me to Visage. Like they said, oh, if you like Ultravox, you have to like Visage, you know? And also got into Gary Newman and so on at the time. And yeah. uh, I, I just loved the second album that you did with Visage. If you can talk about that for a few minutes. The Anvil, for me, although the first album was good, it sounded like a collection of songs that everyone had at some point or another and put together. And they were brilliant as well. I mean, uh, you know, when you look back on them, it still sounds very cohesive. But the next album, I thought, it required. It looked like you guys put a lot of effort into it and getting a sort of a an element that was, uh, you know, recognized at the time. But at the still still time, you were you were using modern technology and you were pushing boundaries. But a lot. The one thing about that album was you can sing along to all the songs. It doesn't get too engrossed in the music. And I'm just wondering, with the album, the Anvil, did you have expectations on that? Did you work much harder on it? I think we probably had a slightly bigger budget mm. um, and it maybe enabled us to, to spend a bit more time in the studio. Uh, the first album was recorded over over the, the period of a year, right. you know, a, a couple of days here and then the bands would all go off on tour doing their own individual things and then you'd grab another few days somewhere else. Um, so it was very fragmented trying to put it together. Mm -hmm. Whereas after the success of the first album, we could we could actually earmark a, a moment and say, okay, when's everyone around? You know, when are we going to sit down and write all this stuff uh, and, and make a, a, a block booking, as it were? You know, it's right in that two month period, we'll write the songs and we'll get into the studio and record it. But it also grew up a little bit as well. You know, you've got to remember that. You know, I suppose I didn't really start writing songs until. 
until the rich kids. So that was 1978. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so the songwriting was getting better. I hope, uh, you know, over the over the years. So by the time the Anvil uh, came out uh, and and you know Ultravox's Vienna and whatever, the songwriting had matured and gotten better. I was getting more more confident, I suppose. And the uh, the sound of the Anvil was slightly different. Uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the first, the first album, Desage, was, was very electronic, whereas the, uh, the anvil moved off. We were using a bit of brass in there. We we're using a lot more guitars in there. Uh, and it, it became a, a, a more comprehensive sound, I suppose. But it wasn't a, I don't remember it being a dedicated moment where you sat down and thought, well, this is what we're going to try and achieve. It was just that music had, had moved on a little bit from the, the the very you know you know kind of baby footsteps of kind of electronic uh, all electronic music. This was now kind of you, the the key to it was writing good music that used whatever instrumentation there was. So electronics was a big part of it. You know. Yeah, uh, but still, I mean, when you listen back on the albums, I was just about to uh, say what you actually said there was, there are elements there which really stand out, particularly your own guitar playing and this drumming as well. You know, this, you can see Rusty's been given a free hand and he's really letting her rip. Um, oh, whereas yeah. the first one, there was a certain restrictions there. But um, I, I also wanted to move on to some of the work that you did with Ultravox uh, because at the same time, as I said, there was elements there that you could kind of put together and say, oh, you know they are very similar but for me and um, we could go through all the albums and i'm sure you've done it many times but i think maybe if it's okay with you i'd like to focus on one particular album which is my favorite and that's rage and eden mm -hmm. i just want to say about that album is that one again when i first heard it it may i don't know whether it was your idea at the time but it made me think of things other than music uh, i thought of kind of avant-garde um film noir 1930s fascism uh european post you know berlin vienna all of those dark cities much more than say with the first album mm. is rage and eden is it a concept album it's a concept album in the sense that we uh, we we took a massive chance you know the, the vienna was recorded in three weeks because uh, we we had written and toured uh, most of the songs so we had the arrangements ready and when we did uh, rage and eden we went to connie plank's studio in germany uh, with nothing we had no no songs, no ideas, absolutely nothing, and we wanted to create the entire thing in this very uh, remote environment. You know, this is this was out in the countryside. You know, thirty thirty kilometers outside Cologne, and uh, and we just created the entire thing in this very Germanic, uh, uh, you know, atmosphere, and a, a lot of the stuff just came from there. It came from us all not just recording together, but living together, which is quite a tough thing for, for any bunch of people who'd only known each other for a, you know, a reasonably short space of time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you woke up and you recorded and you wrote and you did all of that and you went to bed after you'd recorded and then did the same thing again the next day. You were always together. And that causes um, sometimes tensions, uh, which comes out in the music, but it also causes this amazing flow of creativity, because at any given moment, you can say, how about we try doing this? Or what would you do to what I've just put down? And we'd all kind of jump in on it and take it to di different places. So there wasn't like a cohesive, this is what we're going to try and achieve. It was the environment that created the music. Uh, very different from how Vienna was, much to the uh, record company's 
you know, annoyance because they wanted Vienna Part 2, and I can see why. Uh, but we gave them Rage in Eden, which, weirdly enough, is my favourite Ultravox album. Yeah, it's a stunning masterpiece. And the thing is, when I watched um, 1984 many years later, I said to myself, okay, the soundtrack to that, album, to that film was brilliant. I mean, the Eurythmics were involved in it, and, and there's no denying that they were... A- brilliant uh, songwriters themselves but I always thought that Rage in Eden would have been a better soundtrack and I'm just wondering did anybody ever come back to you with Ultravox and say we'd like you to do Dune or something like that because I always felt that your type of music could lend well to um, particularly some of the movies that were being made at the time well I suppose you know there were there were approaches but they were usually pretty dire ideas you mm. know they were bad concepts you know basically soft porn movies or something, you know, it's dreadful. Uh, And at a time when, you know, people like Tangerine Dream were doing a lot of soundtrack Mm -hmm. work uh, and whatever, you know, Vangelis was doing soundtrack work, um, you'd think that Ultravox would be an ideal thing because it was very melodic and very haunting and very atmospheric. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm not quite sure how we would have done it, Uh, you know, we're quite we were quite strong individual characters mm-hmm. uh, and and that doing stuff like soundtrack work takes it needs a leader it needs someone who's got a concept in their head yeah uh, uh, and I'm not sure how that would have worked with Ultravox but yeah I'm very surprised that we weren't approached uh, you know with with something decent you know Dune something science fiction something film noirish you know you know all of those things uh, it's just it just really hasn't happened for whatever reason yeah it's a shame really it's, it's it's always been for me the big what if we've talked a little bit about your career now with uh, Ultravox and of course with um, Vienna and Rage and Eden and uh, The Anvil with uh, Visage but as you were going on you were top of your class people were loving it you were selling out gigs and then along came Bob Geldof and said to you I want to help you with Live Aid now it's been done many times so rather than us going through the, the story because the story's been so well documented I had a couple of questions for you about that sure I remember seeing a documentary of it where you originally had the backing track. You had some concept of the song. But w- by the time it came back into um, into the studio, I think Trevor Horn, you were trying to get Trevor Horn to do the productions and he wasn't available. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Did people come in while you were still writing the song and started you know, singing the, the bits and pieces? Or did you have the song originally done before you called anyone? No, uh, Bob had Bob had a, a half-baked idea for the song. Uh, I came up with a little melody thing. And then uh, when, when Trevor couldn't do it, because Tre- Trevor was going to take mm-hmm. way too long to, to record it, um, I just started, I just built my own studio uh, yeah. in the bottom of the garden. So I, I just started putting the track down, started building the building blocks, the way I do things. It's like layers and layers and layers of pieces. Um, like a big jigsaw puzzle, and then you end up with a whole picture. So I, I took Bob's idea, my idea, and started layering this thing up. So in my studio, I, I, I played all the instruments on the thing. There was, mm-hmm. There's nobody else on the record except Phil Collins, I think. And um, uh, I, I think in order, as, as this was happening, uh, you know, Bob was on the phone all the time, you know, bludgeoning the artist to come <laughs> along and do this stuff. And we just grabbed whoever we could who was around at the time. We grabbed Sting and we grabbed, uh, I think, Simon LeBon Bono. And, uh, and Bono. Uh, no, Bono we didn't get uh, uh, b- beforehand. Oh, yeah. Uh, but we grabbed a few people to make sure that we had some of the vocalists on, I see, yeah. uh, on the track before we went to that day at Sam Studios where everyone turned up. What you've got to remember is that most of those people who turned up had never heard the song. You, know, you couldn't do that. 
in those days, you know. So I had the multi-track masters, and as they walked into the studio, they stood at the back of the control room, and they could hear me. I'd, I'd done a, a guide vocal, so they could listen to the song, you know, various times as other people were singing their lines. So by the time they came to sing the lines, they kind of knew it, you know, it was there. Uh, but it was a very odd way to to work. So I ended up spending maybe five days in my studio doing the track mm. uh, and the vocals that we could do, uh, and then the 24 hours that everyone saw on television. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the speed that you did it and the quality that it ended up, it was a pretty good job. So Band-Aid became Live Aid, and then, you know, we had that famous day both in Philadelphia and in Wembley Stadium. Looking back on the whole project, and I know you went back for Band A2 and Live A2, looking back on the project, do you think it's feasible nowadays that something like that could be pulled off again? Or has music business become so cynical or so, you know, diverse that it would be impossible to do it? Or even say record companies and all being involved? You know what? You can never say never. I mean, you know, something like Live A did never happen before. Uh, so, and we thought it was impossible. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, did, we, we weren't quite sure how it was going to come off, but, um, but it did. But that set a, that set a standard. Um, so you can't say never. I mean, the, the big change isn't the, isn't the desire for people to step up and help. I think the big change in the music industry is, uh, is the kind of lack of income it has these days. It's not the same powerful beast that was back in the mid eighties, uh, where, you know, you, you, you couldn't watch television 24 seven, you know, on your computer and you couldn't, you know, carry, you know, thousands of albums in your phone. Mm -hmm. Uh, you couldn't, you didn't have that kind of access to music. So music was still the kind of be all and end all, but that's shifted and changed now that you've got streaming and, you know, various, uh, various channels showing nonstop music videos, not just MTV anymore. Uh, so I think it's lost its power. Uh, a bit, hmm. you know, to the extent that we had it. We we were lucky to do what we did um, just before the massive technological change and how music was going to be consumed. So when we did Band-Aid, you know, you couldn't do Band-Aid today because people just stream it and you get 0.005 cents or something per stream. So it wouldn't have raised any money whatsoever. Uh, but back then you paid a pound for a piece of vinyl and that pound went to Africa. That's how it kind of worked. And that doesn't, that, 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 um, that, that kind of uh, template doesn't really exist anymore. So it's not for the lack of wanting to do it. It's for the reality and the impact that it would have these days. Saying that, somebody will go and do a fantastic concert next week and, and raise millions, gazillions of pounds. So I'm proving me completely wrong. Yeah. The power, of course, is still with some musicians. I mean, you look at Taylor Swift, for example. I mean, if she was to do a charity concert, as you say, it would probably be able to raise. But sure, look, that's, that's the times we live in. Following on from Band-Aid and Live Aid, you went back to do a, a, an album with Ultravox and then you also embarked on a solo career. Did it, was it difficult to come down from that level? I mean, you'd done this, it'd been part of your life for so much, it was so big. You know, it was, as you said, it was a behemoth. And then you had to go back and go into a studio, record a solo album, solo album go back with the lads from Ultravox and do a new album. And was was it difficult? Did it Was it hard to come down from that? It wasn't hard to come down from it because it, really it wasn't really a high. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't remember it being a high at the time because it was very much, um, you know, a project. It was very much a project that just grew and grew and grew and became monstrous. I think it was harder for Bob mm. uh, to come down and, and, be, and go back 
to the rats or go back to being a musician because mm. nobody saw him as that anymore. Yeah. I was, I was fortunate that, you know, I was two steps behind him and he's, you know, six foot three or whatever and nobody saw me. So I was allowed to go back and, and do my day job. Um, so no, it wasn't, it wasn't that. I think the, th the thing that was difficult was going back to Ultravox, uh, after two years, after a two year break. Um, and, and trying to figure out what we were anymore. We'd, we'd kind of moved off in different directions in that period of time, which is a totally natural thing for anyone to do, mm. uh, in any relationship. Um, so the, the final album was just a bit of a mishmash. You know, I was working, I'd got the band working with the Chieftains, uh, you know, uh, Billy had an orchestra with George Martin on there. Um, we had brass sections. We had, a, it was just, a, it was all over the shop. Um, maybe had we stuck together and, and ridden through that period, we would have found ourselves again, got more cohesive and got back on the back on the, the quality train. But at the time, that was more difficult than trying to step back from, from Band-Aid and Ivy. It's funny, though, because when I listened to that album, Uvox, I did, you know, obviously when I got it, I was a little bit older and uh, I did appreciate it. I, I felt that the elements, some elements had changed. Like, for example, as you said, there was a more emphasis on the drumming. Uh, it was a live drumming. And, of course, Warren wasn't there. So you could you could definitely notice the difference in that. But um, I think in hindsight, it's 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 not so much a mismatch as you might think it might be. It's, it holds well together. Certainly from a vocal point of view, your vocals are on top level at that point. I mean, you're, you know, you're reaching for, you know, that you're getting to the point where you're hitting really great notes in that album. And for a singer, I think it's a really good album. I don't know what you think of that. But. I, I haven't listened to it for a long time, yeah. so I, I, I can't even remember what, what notes I was trying to hit. But like if Follow I hit Your them, Heart, for example, and Same Old Story, you know, it's big, oh, big, your heart. Oh, yeah, 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 big yeah. notes in those songs, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. well, you know, it, it, it was just, I think, I think it, it lacked coherence mm -hmm. because, as I say, it jumped from an orchestra then it went to the, the chieftains, then it went to you know a brass section and whatever. So it was. It, I think as a band we'd lost uh, cohesion. The songs were perfectly fine. I have to um, get my listeners to watch the video because, in my opinion, yeah, your video for Same Old Story was the first selfie ever done. If you remember the way oh. you were holding the video camera, <laughs> you had a yeah, selfie I'm, stick I'm, on the video camera. <laughs> that's right. We had we had these arms with, uh, yeah. with video cameras on it, and and I hate I hate the whole idea of mixing video and film. Mm. It's the only way we could do that, where you can actually do kind of selfie <laughs> shots of yourself, you know, performing yeah. and you know, moving these cameras all around. But that's that's just a creative mind. That's <laughs> that's kind of what we used to do with with Ultravox. We'd, we'd see these things, like the the, the video for If I Was, mm -hmm. which is a pretty rubbish video, but we used the pin matrix, you know, for the pushing your face yes. in it and all of that. When I saw this thing in a shop, I'm going, oh my god, I could use this in a video. How can I? How can I do this? And, uh, and it's just part of the creative process. But yeah, I'd forgotten all about the um, uh, same old story video. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's unusual when you go back and see it and you go, oh, a selfie stick. Anyway, selfie sticks, yeah. Uh, exactly. So you went solo, um, the gift was released and it was, it was basically an enormous hit of an album. You had some great tracks on that album. I mean, even I think uh, you did a few cover versions on that album as well. If I'm right, um, dig me brain now. Wasn't there a Grateful Dead uh, track on that as well? Living no, in the past. Jethro Tull. Jeff. There's a Jethro Tull Sorry. track on it. I'm, I'm, I'm not showing my age finally there. Now, something <laughs> that was before me. So it's a Jethro Tull, Living in the Past. I actually went, do you know what the thing was? When I actually, uh, when I heard that first, uh, I just thought it was your song. And I was reading and I asked my older brother. And he said, nah, give me that. that's an awful rip off, you know. And like I, he played me the original. And I have to say, I thought they both complimented each other. 
It's funny. I, I saw I, just after I did that, I I, I met uh, Ian Anderson, mm. and uh, and the record label guy said, "Oh, you know, Midge has covered Living in the Past." And just said, <laughs> "I know." That was it. So, so I, I take it you wasn't very enamoured with my version. Maybe you go back to him now. You might. You might. You might have... many times since. And he's never mentioned it again. So, <laughs> I mean, look. You know, you use the technology that was available then. I mean, from a from a production value point of view, you'd probably be able to do a lot better nowadays. But I mean, it was a brave attempt, and I think it was great because it showed people like me that your influences weren't narrow minded. Because I think as a as a teenager, when you're listening to your pop stars, you assume that they just listen to all the music that you like. Be it you know all the new wave or whatever words you want to term it new romantics whatever but obviously you know looking back on your career you had so many different uh, influences and it was even when i you know found out later on uh that you'd played in tin lizzy because again it was a little bit before my time but you know being an irish man tin lizzy has a special place in every irish person's heart you know everywhere you go there's two things you sell it's guinness and tin lizzy it's not you know and that's the thing so you know to have you as a member of tin lizzy it's brilliant and it's it was a great plus point for me because if you were in say the schoolyards in as a teenager and people would say you know these guys would be the Rolling Stones Tin Lizzy fans and you'd say yeah who do you like oh, I like Ultravox and they go ah they're girls band I say girls band I say you know mid yours in Tin Lizzy and they'd go they'd have to go off and check <laughs> and then they'd come back and say well technically he wasn't really he just stood in for well, Gary Moore I, you know but like you I, know. I think I think they, they very kindly say I'm part of the Tin Lizzy family <laughs> yeah. that's, what, that's what they say so there we go I was there for a while <laughs> but it must have been a good influence for you though it must have been a good experience it was great, a great experience. I mean, you know, what what a joy to you know mm. to fly out to America for the first time ever on Concord yeah. uh, to go and join a band that I had seen as a three piece. I saw Thin Lizzy playing in uh, Glasgow when I was about eighteen. Mm. After I had seen Skid Row, who again <laughs> way before your time, you know, when I was like sixteen, seen a young Gary Moore, yeah, sixteen uh, year old Gary Moore playing the hell out of this guitar. Yeah, Skid Row uh, is still loved here as well. Yeah, 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 Brush and Oleg and all of that stuff. So yeah, uh, it, that was my kind of my upbringing, and I never forget that. So the funny thing about music and musical tastes is that yeah, we, we we've all got very broad tastes in, in music. It's a bit like growing up and thinking, well, you know, God, I, I don't fit those shoes that are I fitted when I was fourteen. You know, I'm yeah. now much bigger, so I'm going to forget. No, 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 they were part of your life. Those shoes. Just like the music at the time was part of your life, and that leads you on to something else, which leads you on to something else. Yeah. And you never forget that journey that you make, because we all make slightly different journeys. Uh, and that's all part of the makeup of who you are and who you become. You're just like the books you read or the movies you've seen or the people that you've met or your teachers or your parents or whatever. That's what makes you the individual you are. So I never forget my 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 roots, you know, whether it's, you know, Early Fleetwood Mac or or you know, Skid Row or, or Emily Thin Lizzy. Yeah, it's funny you say that because um, my daughter's in there cheering now. She's nine, so she's got the bug. Uh, whereas my other daughter, who's Lucy's five, she listens to Toto's greatest hits. So she's going around <laughs> singing Rosanna all day. <laughs> much to my wife's annoyance because she just happened to hear me do uh, you know I had playing it one day and she just got hooked on the two or three tracks tracks that she heard so so like she had I got her the actual greatest hits album you know and it's like I said I, I thought it's a bit of fun but actually I think it was important to do that because it, it sets them you know guides towards as they get older because you know they will get influenced by what is ever out at the moment but as you say Toto will always be there and, you know, she'll come back to it because at the end of the day, it's such superb songwriting and superb lyrics and superb production that if you have a love for music, if you try to be, you know, cynical and ignore that sort of thing, you're you're doing yourself a disfavor. 
That's true. Very true. Yeah, and the other thing I wanted to move on to was that you had done a lot of solo work, um, I think five albums in total, but the people you've collaborated with has always amazed me. Now, I'm a massive Level 42 fan, and I go right back to, you know, 1980 when they weren't doing so much pop, and it was that jazz funk scene that was happening in, in London. When you got to work with Mark from Level 42, was that something that you had always wanted to do? Did you know him before that? I'd, I'd met Mark, uh, in fact, the first time I met Mark, um, uh, Level 42 were doing a, a live you know, Radio 1 show or something, you know, a BBC show, mm. uh, a radio show, and I was doing it as well. And we were in Cardiff or Swansea or somewhere like that in Wales. Right. And we were having a real good chat. He's a lovely guy. He's a very easy guy to get along with. And I just, he said, what are you up to? And I said, well, I'm doing a solo album and, I, you know, you, you fancy playing on it? And he said, yeah, great, love it, fantastic. So he gave me the, the, the couple of days that he had that were free in his calendar because they were working nonstop, that band. Um, and one of the days was in, uh, I think it was like Atlanta in America. So I flew over a nice day off. I think they were, they were opening up for Tina Turner at the time, I think. Right. Um, so it was a very serious, you know, big tour they were doing. And his day off, um, he, he sent his crew with all his equipment to set up his stuff in a, re in a recording studio in Atlanta. Wow. And I flew in with the multi-tracks and sat there and he's, he's saying, well, great, how does, the, how does the melody go? How does the vocal go on this? And I'm saying, I haven't written the vocal line yet. So he's going, <laughs> well, what the hell do you want me to play? Because I worked around what the vocalist is mm. doing. Mm. So I started singing something to him. Yeah. He, was, he was fantastic. But he was brilliant. I mean, absolutely magnificent musician fantastic and still a still a great friend today do you know that i want to ask you a question in regards to mark's playing do you think certain instruments in modern music has been lost like for example the art of a bass solo or a saxophone solo i don't think it's been lost i think it's been overlooked you know for mm. a long time you know you think think about the you know the kind of the the halcyon days of punk and new wave and whatever you cease to have you know, the greatest guitarist ever or the greatest keyboard player or the greatest drummer. Because mm -hmm. it wasn't about the individual's skills. It was about the collective racket the band was making. Um, but then then you do find that all of a sudden these cool, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a glut of brilliant bass players all of a sudden. Now. Yeah, yeah. We've all picked up. And a lot of them are, and, and drummers, and females, female bass players and drummers, all of a sudden, 20 years ago, you never saw that. It was a real oddity, a real rare thing. But now you get these really skill, skilled young musicians who want to be excellent mm -hmm. at their instrument, not just be in a band and hit four notes. They want to actually be able to play this thing like Mark can. You know, uh, I think Mark's amazing skills aren't just things like, you know, bass solos or whatever. It's where to hit the notes and where to leave the holes. And the fact that he was a drummer before he was a bass player ah, means that makes sense. Elements, his yeah. rhythmic elements are just unbelievable. He's just, he's phenomenal. So he knows what to leave out, which is infinitely more important than what to put in. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes so much sense now you say that. Just with regards to bass players, um, someone else I wanted to talk to you about who is sadly no longer with us, Mick Karn. Again, for me as a young boy listening to Japan, 
it, it was actually mind blowing to be honest to listen to uh, particularly something from Gentlemen Take Polaroids or Quiet Life um, I found Tin Drum a really good album but it was a little bit more electronic and uh, it didn't have the smooth kind of velvety feel that the previous two albums had but when you hear somebody like Mick Karn play bass and I suppose for our listeners we need to explain that he used a fretless bass so he was able to get a very smooth kind of sound was it did you know Mick again I'm asking the same question again but it just the idea of you and Mick coming together was just so brilliant I know you did a couple of tracks after fashion and so on and um it was amazing to hear it because it I'd been a bit too young and I wasn't able to keep track of it so it came to me a few years later when I was already really into Japan and I realized that oh my god you Majur had done something with him so was that a good friendship that you had Something my manager said to me years ago when, because uh, they used to manage Thin Lizzy. Mm. And, uh, and of course, I was a good friend of Phillips uh, eventually. And, and he said, well, you know what? Like-minded people attract each other. Yeah. So there's just something about, you know, artists, skilled people and, and, the, um, uh, and the humanity. You know, you, you, you walk into a room and you can instantly tell if you like somebody you just met them. And mm. whatever it is they give off, you know, there's something that makes you feel comfortable and you can get one. But when I met Mick at first, it was for a Prince's Trust concert. And I, I knew I knew who he was and I knew what he did. But instantly on a personal level, we just hit it off. We just, we were like brothers. We were just really easy with each other. Uh, and the obvious conclusion after doing that first Prince's Trust concert together was that we would work together because we used to hang out all the time, you yeah. know. Um, uh, so, so it was a, an obvious conclusion that we would actually sit down and, and write something. Because you're talking about you're talking about the the lost art of the guitars or the bass solo or the drum solo or sax solo or mm. whatever. You know, Mick basically played the bass like a lead instrument. You know, you listen to all these bass parts and they are so unusual. And the way he used to play was very unusual. Because he would choose notes that wouldn't necessarily be in that scale, um, and I remember he told me he did a he went to do a session for Robert Palmer, and he went out to he went out to Nassau or somewhere like that where Robert was recording, and Mick came in and played these bass parts that he wanted to play on the stuff, and of course all the, the other musicians are saying, well that clashes that goes against the chords, and Robert Palmer said to all the other musicians change the chords. Wow. Because <laughs> he wanted Mick's you yeah. know, weird way of thinking. Yeah. And, and the great thing about Mick was, he said, I don't know the notes I'm playing. He said, it's, it's skin on wire on wood. He said, I feel it and I play it. And that what feels right to me, that's what I play. He said, I don't sit and go, well, that's in B flat, but that's in C, so they, they clap, yeah, that doesn't work, you know. He just said, I play, and that's, that's how he was. It was brilliant. While we're on the subject of admiring other musicians and bands, did you like Japan? When you heard them first, did you go, okay? Uh, not not at first, not when they were doing the kind of New York Dolls yeah, type stuff, yeah. you know, in the very early days. I just didn't quite get what that was. It looked a bit old-fashioned, didn't it, at that point? Well, it wasn't just the look. It was, it was, it was, it was, a, bit, it was a bit rock and roll, I suppose, at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it was coming out of the kind of punk, you know, new wave period, I suppose. Um, but you know, you saying you didn't like tin drum. I loved tin drum. I thought it was a, a great combination of live instrumentation and electronics, um, and it was a, a lovely concept. But yeah, I, I had I, every time I'd I heard Japan on the radio, 
they were trying to do something interesting. They weren't just going along, you know, along with the flow or looking for the next big hit record. They were actually creating interesting music. You know, when they did Ghosts, for instance, you know, you would never hear Ghosts on the radio, but we did. You know, it had charted and mm -hmm. it was getting played on, you know, national radio, which is really unusual. But that kind of experimentation, uh, you know, really kind of uh, enthused me. You know, it made it made me want to experiment a bit more and not just seek the three minute pop song. But, you know, go out there and find something that's got a bit more longevity. Because you did do um, a couple of tracks with the uh, with the band, some of the band members from Japan, uh, Richard, Steve, and of course Mick in the early two yeah. thousands. I think Little Orphans was the name of the album. Well, we we did uh, Little Orphans, just a, a weird collection of things that I'd done that, mm. that, that didn't really have a home. We we had talked about we we tried to put a band together uh, with with uh, Richard, Steve, and and Mick and I. Okay, but I didn't want to be the singer. Oh, <laughs> uh, I was already I was already the vocalist in, in okay. Ultravox. Yeah, I just yeah. thought it was too close. Like like I didn't want to be the singer in Visage. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we kept looking for this mythical fifth person and never found them. <laughs> so we, we, did a, we did a couple of tracks, uh, you know, yeah. where, where, where we, we we did some stuff, but they were only really uh, kind of demos. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a pity it didn't go any further. And maybe maybe in hindsight, I should have just some the thing just just gone off there and do but i didn't want it to sound like it sounds like japan with me singing you know <laughs> well i think that would have been still good enough for both japan and ultravox fans because i think um you know if you're an ultravox fan you are usually a, a japan fan because i've always kind of looked at those spectrums you know there was a certain amount of uh, artists at the time and you know at the very end of that kind of new wave kind of new romantic thing you had you know boy george and culture club and then on the other end you had japan and like you know japan ultravox gary newman and as you moved on it became more popular spanda ballet and duran duran did you look at all those other bands and say to yourself okay we've got to do what they're doing or did you kind of were you a bit kind of young snobby and just go ah, we're much better than they are oh I, oh yeah there's always a snobbiness <laughs> don't don't believe anyone who says there isn't there's always a rivalry um, no, I, I saw there was there was a divide. Mm. There were there were the kind of art school bands, yeah, uh, who who were striving to make interesting, you know, top talk, and you know, there's a, a, a lot of bands who do just a bit more experimental and, and whatever. And then there were pop bands who were just using electronics, you know, because that that was the toy at the time. That was the that was the new thing, and they were just uh, making kind of electronic pop songs. Um, and there was a bit of a divide, and and because I had come from Slick, uh, you know, which was a, an out and out pop band. Uh, I didn't want any of that. I wanted to get my teeth into something a bit more you know, serious. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, even though you you veer from, you know, doing something like Rage in Eden, and you end up doing something like, you know, working with George Martin. Yeah. Uh, we're still trying to keep it on the darker side of things. We're still trying to keep it interesting and and you know not not just thrown together because it's time for a new album yeah you know and, and that's a trap that that a lot of people can fall into so we used to fight against the idea of using different producers you know we we chose who we worked with uh, and and a bunch of other artists uh, did the same thing which as i say we all kind of fed off each other you know we didn't look at what japan were doing and try and copy them mm -hmm. but you know and i'm sure they didn't do that with with ultravox either but when you do something that has longevity, that inspires artists further down the line. You know, I can hear a lot of Ultravox and, you know, Muse. Yes, you know, definitely. Uh, and, and, and bands like that. 
Yeah. And the other band that always stuck out with me is a little bit on this, the fringes of things. Maybe it was because they weren't signed to a major label. I'm wondering what you thought of Depeche Mode, because they seem to go from one end of that spectrum across to the other. Well, they, they did, but they always kept their individuality, didn't they? You mm. know, they, they, Depeche Mode's uh, opened up for an Ultravox gig in, in London. We did a charity gig in London when they were just a, you know, young kids with a one synthesizer each. Um, and they, they grew, uh, you know, a massive extent. They, they, they grew up and kept that identity with them. They never ever, you know, went off and did a, a disco album or a, you know, yeah. a, a pop album because yeah. that was what was. They just, they were just very skilled at writing interesting songs that had a very, uh, very wide appeal. Um, and they still do. So good on them. You know, they stuck with it. Uh, you know, for, for, of all the bands that you'd think, that wouldn't have lasted 40 years. I thought they were one of them, but they did. They, they've outlasted us all. Yeah, it's funny you say that. And actually, they still have such a massive following as well. And it seems to me that younger people who are looking for that dark side of music, you know, there's not so many shoegazing bands anymore. You know, we don't have like Pearl Jam or any of those acts. Rock music in an awful lot of ways has you know, been hit hard by, by modern music and the, and the recent pandemic and so on. So young people are still looking for influences, aren't they? And they're going to people like, you know, Depeche Mode because they, maybe their older brother or their mother even been listening to them. So yeah, they seem to still have this huge following. Another band that still has a huge following, which I know you know very well is Simple Minds. Um, Again, what what was um what was it like being say a Scots person and seeing all of these bands coming out of Scotland because we'd Simple Minds, uh, the Associates, um, Orange Juice and all. Were you kind of going? Did you see that there was a scene there and say okay, fair play to you guys, or was it something that was happening all over the UK at the time? No, I I had already left uh, Glasgow at that point. I I moved south to join the Rich Kids in nineteen seventy seven. So I I knew uh, I knew Simple Minds. Uh, I'd seen them uh, opening up for a magazine in London, um, uh, and at that point they, they were very they, they were very ultravox influenced. It sounded like ultravox prior to me being in ultravox, very very kind of uh, John Fox era. Um, but they grew again, you know, and then they've 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 had the the longevity. All the other stuff coming out of Scotland. It, when I left Glasgow, it was just about to change. Uh, you know, independent labels. Uh, had started to appear in Scotland. Um, we didn't really have major recording facilities. I think, I think there might have been a, a twenty-four track studio just about to open. Uh, there was no infrastructure in Scotland, so mm -hmm. I was in London at the time with the Rich Kids when it, all this started to emerge. And I thought, well, yeah, the talent's always been there, but the facilities haven't. You know, everything everything used to be London centric, and I didn't know that that was the same with Ireland. You know, yeah, all the absolutely. bands from Ireland all had to get on the ferry and come across and try and establish themselves in London. You know, Lizzie certainly had to do that. You know, all all the bands, you too. You know, all of that stuff. So, um, so I I knew that was a a, a scene uh, happening, but I wasn't part of it. I'd, I'd already moved on. Going back to your solo career, you had the opportunity to bring to come back to Ultravox. And we'll talk about the re re we'll talk about the rich kids reunion as well. When the option to came to come back with Ultravox, I think it was around two thousand and seven. How difficult was that to to go back to something that was kind of say stagnant or either not being used for so long, or was it something that you inner desire that you felt this is the right time? It, weirdly, the the decision was kind of made for us because um, you know we all got an email saying you know it's you coming up for an anniversary of Vienna, mm -hmm. you know, you should be, if you're ever going to 
tour again, ever going to do anything again. Now's the time to think about it. And weirdly, all four of us thought, oh, that could be interesting. It wasn't on the radar, you know, just the fact that, and I think the, probably the first question that we all asked was, well, what do the others think? You know, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Because, because it doesn't, it falls apart if somebody doesn't want to do it. But weirdly, we all thought that could be an interesting thing just to go out and play those tunes. Um, and it was, then it got scary. Then you think, well, hold on a second. We haven't seen each other for years. Uh, you know, I've been working in music all the way through. Billy's been writing and recording in his place. Warren didn't seem to have done anything in music and neither did Chris. So you think, is this, is this a, a rod for our own backs? Backs we're creating here. You know, this is, this could be a major uphill struggle. Yeah. And the moment we got back together again and got over the initial awkwardness of being in the same room and, you know, just, just getting on with stuff. The moment we played together, it instantly sounded like Ultravox. And I don't know how, because, I mean, we were using different equipment. Uh, we, you know, we were, uh, we had to, we had to pull ourselves into the, the 20th century at the time. So it was like, you know, computers and soft synthesizers and all of that rather than banks and banks and banks of keyboards. Um, so there was a massive technical, you know, learning curve uh, for the guys. I mean, I'd been touring all the way through, so I'd made the transition anyway. Um, but the, the moment we plugged in and just, just did a, you know, a half a song, it was right back there. It was just that sound was there again and that feeling was there again. And it was a great thing to do. You know, we, we eventually ended up making an album, as you, as you pointed out, you know, the, the, the brilliant album, um, which we had never intended in doing. Uh, and it was actually a really good record. Uh, the, the weird thing being that having not written together, you know, it's one thing playing the old songs again, it's a whole different thing writing new material together. Yeah. And the, the spark was there. We, we just wrote all this stuff. It was like seamless. That 25, 30 year gap just disappeared. And there we were, a bunch of old men sounding like a bunch of young men. I don't know. I don't know how it happened, but it worked. Yeah, and the funny thing was, I had heard about that you were playing in Dublin in the Olympia, so um, I grabbed, I dragged my wife along, you know, and she knew of Ultravox. Actually, the funny thing was, she had known Ultravox. The only song she knew by Ultravox was Slow Motion, which had, which didn't even have you on it. So, right, no, that was pre me, yeah. So I said, no, you got to see this. So I played, gave her a bit of a rundown. She said, oh yeah, great. And you know, I think you mentioned once in a podcast that you were talking on was that you have to be respectful to the audience because 50% are dragged along. And uh, you know, I'm <laughs> standing up and saying guilty there for that one. But she loved it. She thought it was great. And like, oh, great. Her first, yeah, her first question at the end was, why aren't they doing this all the time? And why haven't we heard from them? And I was going, long story. You went in and you did the album, brilliant. And the other thing was, again, I was actually in Poland and I was uh, staying. We were staying with my wife's parents. It was a lovely sunny day, and the radio was on. And the thing about Polish radio uh, compared to say UK and Ireland radios, they do generally play a very wide variety of, of you know artists, which is brilliant. Um, and I'm sitting there and I heard "Lie," and I'm going, "That sounds like a, you know an Ultravox type song." And it just kept going. I said, no, wait a second. That is an Ultravox type song. And I said, well, that's definitely Ultravox. So I started thinking, um, here's the way my brain was working. I was saying, maybe, you know, this is really great. Maybe this Polish have found this record that I've never, you know, track that I've never heard of. And then, you know, he, the guy comes on in Polish. And obviously, I don't really understand what he's saying. But my wife said, that's the new single from Ultravox. And I was like, 
what? And I was like, <laughs> I was like screaming at the top of my voice like a 15 year old kid. And my my father-in-law was looking at me going, is he okay? You know, so, so, <laughs> it was so it was so exciting because my mindset, you know, was that, no, there's no possible way it could be a new track. I'd already made up my mind that it was something that was either lost or remastered or something like that. Yeah. yeah. So to hear it, like, and to hear it in its element, it was brilliant. But what, what stood out for you, as you said, is that it sounded like you'd never gone away. And when I took and bought that album, I immediately went home and bought the album as soon as it was released. I just sat down and listened to it right away through to the end. And then I put it on again and it just felt like it'd been, you know, that five years afterwards. And of course, obviously, the production qualities and all were up to scratch, but definitely the mood of the album was um, was brilliant, to use a better term, excuse the pun. Thank you very much. Yeah. And I also thought, you know, so I spoke to some of my friends online who've been longtime fans and we had this argument about saying they need to keep going. But my argument was, if it is going to stop, that's a really good way to stop. And I, I, I think it's, you're, apart from Rage and Eden, I think it's your best album. Yeah, I think I, I, I kind of agree with you there because, because it was coherent. And weirdly, 90% of that album was recorded because we were all living in the same house. Yeah. We all went off to my house in Canada, uh, I had at the time, and we set up little laptop studios and just started writing and recording. And um, and it, it, weirdly, that's exactly what we did it uh, with Rage and Eden. So maybe 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 that was the key to it all. You know, you've got you've got to be in the same room. You know, not none of this three days this week and then five days that week and then you go on holiday for a couple of weeks or whatever. Get in there, lock the doors, and just do the job. You know. So uh, yeah, it's great. I know you've said that Ultravox are probably not going to get back together again, but uh, if that's going to happen, it was a great way to end. You know, and you know it didn't end with some, uh, you know cobbled together compilation of you know lost tracks and all that kind of thing it was nice to come back and end the story so to speak as i said before you know it wasn't you know we were never about oh god you know we've got to get back in and do the next one because contractually that's what we've got to do Mm. um you know that stuff's easy you you can you can go in and cobble something together and throw it out there you know we never ever ever wanted to fall into that so when we did the brilliant album uh, you know, what weirdly, a record label who offered us uh, the, the deal to make the record wanted us to to write songs exactly like you know Vienna, and we said no. So we we ended up going off and doing it on our own um, uh, and make the record that we wanted to make. Yeah. And if it hadn't worked, we didn't need to play it to anybody because we didn't owe it to anybody. We just we went off and did it. Um, so, uh, so we wanted to do it and do it incredibly well because you're right. Too many people get back together and and they do it because of somebody's offered them, you know, a gazillion pounds uh, to make it, and it's not because they wanted to make the music good. And we've always wanted to make the music good. Mm. And with regards to reunions, but on a completely different level, you got together. I think it was in 2016, did you? And played with the Rich Kids live at a gig. <laughs> How did that feel? Because that must have been uh, mental. That must have been like playing with school kids, you know, your schoolyard friends. Well, uh, yeah, well, it was, it's bizarre. You know, there you are, you know, uh, 50, 60 something year old man, (laughs) uh, a man standing on stage, belting out these high energy, you know, three, four chord, you know, new wave thrash songs. But it was great fun. It was, it was fabulous. Again, it was, um, 
it was a bit messy, yeah. uh, a bit under-rehearsed, but that's kind of how the rich kids were. Absolutely. You know? uh, it was always a bit frantic and a bit nutty, and um, but it was great to do it just before Steve, the guitarist, died. Yeah. He, was, he wasn't well at the time, and we did it to raise some money for him. And, uh, and then we did a, another gig uh, maybe a couple of years later, and uh, Gary Kemp from Spandau came in and played guitar mm-hmm. uh, on on that for us. So um, so yeah, we've done it a couple of times. It's been fun, just one offs. You know, n- never a tour. You know, maybe maybe we wouldn't last <laughs> for an entire tour. <laughs> but but it was it, great for a night. It wouldn't be punk if you did. <laughs> so no, it, have, it wouldn't. It, 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 yeah, yeah, it has to be kind of like polished. yeah, exactly. <laughs> it has to be like you know, last minute phone call. Listen, I'm up in London. Do you yeah, want to come yeah, and get yeah, together? I'm, I'm, can you get here now? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> plug, plug your guitar in. It just I don't know how it starts. Go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's definitely done in the true spirit of punk. Come here. You're on a new tour now at the moment. Can you tell me loads about that? Well, uh, the, uh, the, the, the UK and Ireland tours been mm. postponed twice now uh, yeah. because of COVID, you know, obvious things. We're not really doing anything um, proper, I don't suppose, until spring of next year. Um, and and we're working towards that now, um, but it's just so it's so uh, soul destroying, you know, when you put yeah. your heart and soul into something, not just for us, but for the audience because they're buying tickets and they they want to go and see it. And of course, now we've hit this funny thing where even when people buy tickets, they're still scared about going out and sitting in a venue, yeah, uh, which is totally understandable. So a lot of tours are just collapsing, you know, halfway through. So we're working very hard to make sure that that people know about this and it's it's uh, it's a safe environment for everyone to come and see it. But in the meantime, I'm I'm, I'm working on uh, I'm going to be doing a tour in America with Howard Jones. Lovely. Um, so he's he's doing a a tour where it's he's concentrating a bit more on the electronic side of things, mm-hmm. and I'm his special guest out there. So I'm I've been doing a lot of keyboard programming and getting sounds and stuff like that. And that's going to be fun. So that's happening during June and July in mm-hmm. America. Uh, so there's always, and then there's a European tour uh, at the end, of, end of this year. And there's some UK dates that were left over from the tour that was postponed last year. And that's happening in September. It's all over the shop. Nothing's neat and tidy anymore. So it's all, I think COVID's come along and absolutely blowing everything out the water. So, uh, so we're doing lots of juggling, musical juggling, I'm calling it. Yeah, and you're in Dublin. Is it on the uh, May the twenty sixth? Is it? I am, yes, we are. Yes, I, I, we're doing that. Um, we're doing that with what I call my rock band. Okay. Um, uh, I've got a couple of different bands. I've got my band Electronica, which is all very synthesized. I seen that in 2019. Uh, that was a brilliant gig in the Olympia. Right. Thank you. Thank you. I just, we spent a lot of time getting that right. So this yeah. is this is the rock band who we basically play the same stuff. But um, in much much simp- much more simplified way, plug into gu- amp into the guitar and mm-hmm. and give it some stick. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to that. I love Dublin. I always have um, you know lots of connections with uh, with the Irish people over the years. Uh, so yeah, looking forward to it. The Button Factory is a great venue as well for a smaller type of gig. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. It's been a great response so far. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to try and make it 26 now and see what I can do. Um, I'm, I'm just trying to juggle a few things at the moment, but uh, it was just that when... Aren't we all? <laughs> so it's crazy. <laughs> just trying to catch up at work and everything. And, you know, it's it's uh, it, as I said, do you know, quickly before we end, I wanted to ask you a question in relation to COVID. Rock music has suffered more than any other genre, hasn't it, when it comes to COVID? Because it absolutely relies on the live venues. 
It does, and uh, you know, our, our government in the UK um, did nothing about it, nothing about the arts. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the, what they did eventually do was minimal. Um, there was no help because 99% of the music industry is self-employed, yeah, and they did nothing for the self-employed. So, uh, you know, I was in I was in New Zealand when all this kicked off. We managed to hobble our way back to the UK uh, to find everything ground to halt. And some of my crew uh, haven't really worked uh, over two years now. Yeah. And a lot of the musicians uh, haven't worked in, in, in a couple of years. And it's been devastating, you know, so not just for the artists and the audiences, but the venues, mm -hmm. uh, the truckers, the lighting guys, the PA rental companies, you know, the, the travel industry or the tell industry, you know, all of that stuff has had a massive knock-on effect. Um, and to the extent that, as I say, we're still seeing it, we're still seeing tours being booked and then people reticent to come out to see it. And whether it's because they've had two years of sitting watching, you know, movies on Netflix and they can't be bothered going out or, or whether they've lost the, the desire to go out or whether they're just scared to go out, which is what I've been finding. Um, you know, we have to kind of entice audiences to get back out there and, and do it. Live entertainment, there's nothing, to, there's no substitute. You know, watching live stuff on television is okay, mm -hmm. but walking into a venue and seeing the amplifier lights on and, and the noise and the, the people walking on the stage and just before it, you know, that first note is hit, there's, there's nothing to, to, um, to replace that. No, I agree. And even going back to when I was a kid, I still have all my ticket stubs from all the, you know, gigs that I went to throughout the 1980s yeah. and 90s. And unfortunately, it's not that much of a big deal anymore. But yeah, I get it's what you're saying. It's all digital now, isn't it? It's all yeah. Everything's digital. I read an article about it a couple of days ago saying, have we lost something? A bit like when we stopped having vinyl, you oh. know, when you could read the sleeve and read the lyrics and look at the photographs, mm. you know, then it all went digital and you don't get anything. You get, you just get, you get, a, a, you get the music on your phone and that's it. You know? It's amazing. And the other thing was just um, quickly, when now you mentioned vinyl, I mean, what I used to do as a teenager would go into the record shops, the secondhand record shops in Dublin, because there's some great ones there. And you go in and you'd find, um, you know, say you'd start looking instead of start looking for artists, you'd look for who produced them. You know, okay, you know, John Punter, he did Japan, going to see who produced. You know, or you'd see somebody like, uh, you know, Connie Plank or anything like that. And if you, if they produced that album 50% of the time, it's going to be okay. Now, but I have to say, you got me on one. There was one time I trusted you and you let me down terribly. <laughs> I, found, I found, I found, I found a 12 inch single by a Swedish band called Strasse. And, Strasse, yeah. <laughs> and I said, oh, Major, brought it home. Not great, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't write it, I have to tell you. It was it was okay. It was okay. But funny enough, actually, they released an album about 20 years later, which was really brilliant. I don't know if you ever had a chance to listen to it, but it was excellent. So they really had time to, to, to you know, catch up with you. But uh, yeah, that was the oh, only no, time. Maybe I, 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 I fired the firing pistol on the starting block, but they <laughs> yes. were great by the time they finished. Yeah, <laughs> it took them 20 years, but they pulled it off. Exactly. So Mitch, last question. Um, what are you reading, listening to at the moment? Uh, I'm uh, I'm reading a, a Patricia Cornwell book, um, who who's uh, written a series of books about a you know pathologist case Scarpetta. Yeah. And I hadn't read one for about ten years, 
And uh, I, I've got a Kindle. I've got one of these reading devices that I take everywhere with yeah. me because, you know, you can just download a book when you need one. And, and it's not very good. It's not brilliant. It's not up to <laughs> usual standards. But I've started it and I'm now going to have to try and finish it. I hate stopping a book halfway through. Yeah, exactly. So it's not that bad. I'll finish it. So that's that's doing me for now as I lie on a beach somewhere. That's an absolute release. And what about music? Is there any modern music you're listening to or even old stuff? I've been, I've, been, to- I've got very, very odd tastes in music and I, I very rarely uh, these days get excited about, you know, a new artist or, mm-hmm. or whatever. And because the way music used to get to you, uh, I still listen to radio and if, if radio stations aren't taking the chance and playing good, interesting music, I never really hear much about it. Um, I don't really stream a lot of music because I don't, I don't agree with the streaming thing. Yeah. Uh, I think it's really detrimental to artists and, and producers. But I can see why it's incredibly popular with people because you basically you, you, you pay your, you know, nine pounds a month or whatever it is, and you've got access to just about every piece of music ever recorded. Um, but it's not great for us. So I don't do that. And I'm not on social media that much where People say, you've got to listen to this. These yeah. are brilliant albums. But when I do hear things, I, I listen to it. So I've been listening to a lot of instrumental music um, recently, a lot of ambient textural stuff like Mills Fram and, you know, Sigur Ross and, and all of that, the lovely Icelandic stuff. Mm-hmm. Keeps you going anyway. <laughs> Keeps you Certainly sane, does. as they say. Yeah. Midge, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me this morning. That's an absolute pleasure. Just so that people can uh, get some more info, your website is uh, midyour.co.uk. All the information on the rescheduled states are there, aren't they? Yeah, everything's up there. Yeah, everything's there. Yeah, we've got a great team who, who kind of keep it all, keep people informed. Yeah, and many thanks to Philippa as well for, for uh, helping to uh, get us to talk today. She's, uh, she's brilliant. So listen, Midge, best of luck with the concert. I'm going to try and get there in the 16th. I'll put up a big sign to say I was talking to you last week, maybe. If it, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, taking the time out from your holiday, it's really brilliant. I really appreciate oh, it. It's a pleasure. Don't worry about it. Great. Guys, you've been listening to The Comfortable Spot. My name is Ken Sweeney, and we will see you all very soon. So take care, y'all. Bye-bye. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,